Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Azadine Downs to the show. Azadine Downs became president and CEO of the International Fund for Animal Welfare in 2012. Azadine has led IFAW through a groundbreaking period of geographic expansion and strategic consolidation. He helped open offices in four continents, including IFAW's first office in the Middle East. In 2015, Fast Company named Azadine one of the most 100 creative people in business, and he has been listed among the nonprofit Times Power and Influence Top 50. He is a member of the Global Tiger Forum Advisory Council, and he currently sits on the U.S. Trade and Environmental Policy Advisory Committee. Azadine, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and thank you for having me. Azadine, thank you for joining, and I must say it's the most unique name I've come across so far in 150 episodes. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's, it's Arabic, and it means honor of the religion, as in, is honor and deen is religion. So that's what my name means. It's beautiful. Thank you. As a dean, where are you currently located? I am in Rhode Island in the United States, um, where we moved from the Netherlands about eight years ago. And how's the weather up in Rhode Island? Uh, It's uh, turning spring. The flowers are coming up. So I'm a big gardener. um, And that always gives me hope (laughs) to see the spring, springtime emerging. Do you garden flowers or vegetables too? Mostly flowers. Uh, we do a lot of herbs because my wife, my wife is from Morocco, so we do a lot of uh, cooking, and uh, we grow our own herbs in the garden. We, you know, we live in the city, so we don't have a big, a big plot, but uh, we do what we can with the the piece of land we have. So let me just take a wild guess here. You have mint growing. We have mint growing, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you, can't, you can't have any place, uh, any garden without a bit of mints for the mint tea. Well, I'm guessing, especially being the Moroccan, right? I mean, it's, oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's funny because in Indian gardens, you know, you'll always find mint growing somewhere. And it, it, for those that don't know, mint grows amazing and it, it grows wild. Oh yeah, no, it spreads. It spreads very easily, uh, and I and I also learned um, that mosquitoes don't like the smell of mint, and so it keeps the mosquitoes away too. I've heard the same about those lemon plants. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Interesting. So, as a dean, I like to open the show by asking my guest the following question: If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? I think I would say uh, I married someone that I didn't know. We had an arranged marriage, um, and we've been married for 32 years. So it, it clearly worked out pretty well. And I'm guessing you know her now. I know. <laughs> well, you know, one never know, one never knows. But yeah, I, I pretend I know. I pretend I know. <laughs> I think good we husbands all, will do. Yeah. I think we all do. You just kind of <laughs> nod and hope there's not a follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You'd be surprised how often I have to say, what was the last three words you said? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we, you know, we, and we, we speak Arabic uh, together and um, it goes back and forth depending on, you know, where, where we live and we have three children and they answer us in English and we speak to them in Arabic and, and, and my brothers who don't speak Arabic, they, they can't understand, like, how is it possible that people can be speaking two different languages and understand one another? But to us, it seems very normal. Um, but to others, it seems incomprehensible, I guess. Yeah, we we have a similar situation in our house. My wife and I speak Hindi back and forth. We, okay. speak, to our, we speak to our kids in Hindi every once in a while. They'll look at us. Yeah. Um, the older two know 
a lot more than they let on because obviously uh, every once in a while my wife and I'll talk about something and they're like, no, yes, they'll, they'll answer, you know, and we're like, oh, you do understand, right? So I, I know what you <laughs> no, mean. Yeah, you, you have to be careful with the kids around. My my son just married a, a woman from Brazil and so she speaks Portuguese. I'm a, gra- a new grandfather, which I'm thrilled about too. Um, and she speaks Portuguese to him. And so when I try to say something to him in Portuguese, he just looks at me and says, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on being a grandfather. Thank you. So as the dean, can you give the audience an overview of the International Fund for Animal Welfare and your role at the organization? Sure. So we're a global organization. We work in 40 countries around the world. And our focus is really on um, animals and people thriving together in the place that we call home, which is our planet. So even though animal welfare is in our name, uh, we, we've been around for 50 years. We were formed in 1969 up in Canada. And um, I think the focus over those years were really on individual animals. Uh, I'm now the CEO. And it, it really occurred to me through the course of our work that if we don't involve people, um, we're not going to solve the problems that wildlife face. And so that's really what we do as an organization and um, involving communities in ways that they haven't been involved previously to save the lives of animals. And basically you're saving yourself. When you're saving the planet uh, in which you live, you're, you're saving the place that you yourself live. And so um, it's, it's a new approach in the sense that um, conservation really was focused on populations of of animals and um, it rarely involved or focused on the lives of individual animals the part that they play in their own societies and it certainly didn't include the people that live with wildlife and in many cases you know very dangerous animals I love this word welfare in, in your the title of the you know the, the organization. Mm. Can you speak specifically because I think the mind goes to a different direction when you speak about conservation versus welfare. Can, yeah. you, can you speak to welfare a little bit? Sure. So when we speak of welfare, it's it's a term that applies to well-being and how how are animals treated? How are they viewed? We talk a lot about it, I thought, the intrinsic value of, of animals and intrinsic value of wildlife. So oftentimes, uh, when we're involved in some of the larger issues of conservation, it's always about large-scale habitat, uh, the economics of, of conservation. It rarely focuses on the well-being or the welfare of an individual animal. And for a long time throughout sort of the history of animal welfare, um, the science community viewed it as an emotional response. It wasn't based on science. It really didn't matter whether or not um, the well-being of of an individual animal was important. But over the years, there's really been a body of science that's emerged that talks about animal welfare and sort of the daily life and and the role that animals play in their own societies. And when you look at elephants, for example, which is a matriarchal society, it's incredibly important uh, to look at the life of the matriarch and what is it that she does on a daily basis. And um, there is an emotional attachment uh, that those animals have amongst themselves. And when you translate uh, strategies to that, that simply focus on populations, you wind up in situations like many years ago in a national park in Africa, um, it was said, well, there's too many elephants. And so they culled them and it was haphazard. They just decided, well, we're going to, we're going to kill 50 elephants. Uh, not taking into consideration family groups or the matriarch. And that's what they did and wound up with 10 years of sort of rambunctious male teenage bulls rampaging through uh, the national park, destroying crops, uh, leaving the park, and causing all sorts of incredible problems that disrupted um, the, the, the balance that the, the herds had. And, and I think it was a, a moment when scientists began to realize, well, wait a minute, um, it's not just about the numbers. It's 
in many instances how those animals are interacting with one another um, and whether or not they're stressed. And so a lot of times when you talk about animal welfare, you're talking about um, the stress that they encounter either through the loss of their own habitat or in the case of um, you know illegal wildlife trade, uh, the killing of a matriarch, leaving, leaving a family group without a leader. And, and so the good news there is that animal welfare, I think, is, is much more recognized as a real science and a real concern in conservation. And that's one of the things that, you know, personally, I really drive towards. You know, sometimes when we talk about conservation, people will say, well, animal welfare is in your name. Are you moving away from animal welfare? And my answer to that always is no. I don't want to change animal welfare. I want to change conservation so that it includes animal welfare. You know, the idea of culling 50 elephants just sounds heartbreaking. You know, <clears throat> this issue of there are too many animals, when you you know look at the statistics that come out every year in the UN reports, you know, a million species in danger, it's hard to fathom that anyone is still making the argument that there are too many animals, um, too many elephants. But it's really the politics of the situation. Um, and I think the approaches of of conservation, and you know, one of the things that you know we can chat about is this notion that I call fortress conservation, where you have a national park, you fence it in, you fence the animals in, and you fence the animals, you fence the the people out. So when you fence the people out, um, it creates you know a, a great level of animosity, and if then elephants in particular um, destroy crops of people who are struggling to make ends meet in the first place. Um, the response typically is, well, we need to kill those those animals. And in response to that, if the focus was just on, well, how many elephants are there? What's the population size? As opposed to the family groups, you wind up with a culling situation where you're killing elephants for really for economic reasons to sell the ivory. Um, but they caused many, many more problems than they solved. It's also preventing uh, the animals and, and other animals that migrate, you know, naturally from from their natural movement. So we talk about corridors across Africa and allowing these animals to move so that they're not destroying crops, they're not destroying the landscapes and and uh, tearing down trees and things that elephants do do if they're if they're confined. Um, so this gets gets to this issue of, you know, sharing the planet. And that's why we talk about at IFAL, um, you know, a focus on of animals and people thriving together. Uh, because the, the, the parks, if they're just fenced in, they're not capable of allowing the animals to act naturally. And, and you wind up with a situation where you, you're well, governments believe they're forced to cull. So let's talk tactically about what IFA does on the ground. And I'd like for you to speak about the unusual suspects also. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I do talk about the unusual suspects because, you know, over the years throughout my career, I've found that, um, and it's probably human nature, that we often have um, the propensity to speak to people of like-minded, right? So we're talking to the people who already agree with us, and um, I, I found, particularly in the political world, and it is much more political than I ever imagined, um, and driven by economics and driven by money. At the at the end of the chain of wildlife problems, there's always there's always money there, and so. What I've tried to do is to reach out one to people that don't agree with us, and that's why, you know, we work in in Southern Africa. Um, and in Southern Africa, for example, many governments uh, subscribe to the philosophy that if wildlife doesn't pay, it doesn't stay. And this gets to this notion that I shared with you of animals have intrinsic value. There are many governments and there are many people who believe that wildlife and, and nature in and of itself has no intrinsic value. It has no worth unless it's worth money 
to someone. And that's a very difficult conversation to have with people. There's a lot of money involved when you talk about illegal wildlife trade, um, and the sale of ivory or the sale of pangolins or the sale of rhino horns. Um, there's a lot of money to be made. And so, you know, the argument connects in ways that was unexpected to me. And, and, and that's what I talk about, you know, the, um, the characters who are out there that you, you would think, well, I'm not going to speak with them. I'm not going to work in a place that opposes us philosophically. Um, but my feeling has always been, well, one, you have to be patient. You have to be willing to be criticized. You have to be willing to be attacked. Um, but at the same time, there's lots of organizations out there and governments and <clears throat> UN bodies that focus on uh, human issues. So we talk about you know the su- sustainable development goals. And I've had experiences where I've met with um, people in, in East Africa and Ethiopia, but Southern Africa as well, where uh, they focus on uh, girls' education or women's issues or gender issues or agriculture. And they'll say, well, I don't know why you are here because you, you work with animals. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious about what it is that you're working on. So, well, we're working on agricultural um, issues and, you know, we put a lot of money into creating agricultural space. And I, I would ask, well, did you think about where the migratory patterns of the wildlife that live in this area uh, will be affected when you, when you put that beautiful, you know, fruit, fruit grove or, or whatever, or corn or maize or whatever it might be. And you could see sort of the blood drain from their, their face saying, well, we never thought of that. Uh, we don't work on wildlife issues. And I said, yeah, but that's what I'm saying is that, you know, the communities that live with wildlife know these issues. If you only focused on one issue as opposed to looking at the habitat that's shared, you, you miss you miss the point. And so that's that's what I mean when we talk about, you know, reaching out to the sort of the unsuspecting characters. Um and sometimes it works and sometimes <laughs> sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. But so it sounds like you almost are taking a systems thinking approach to the problem. No, that's that's right. That's right. And you know that that that's that's what I mean when I talk about fortress conservation and I know I know why organizations do it and I know why they did it initially and it was honestly it was easier when you have a controlled space and all you're focused on is the animals that live inside that space, you never were faced with the cultural issues, the religious issues, the economic issues, uh, educational issues, gender issues of the people that live outside the park. And I think you're probably aware that, you know, in many places around the world, um, you know, people who who lived in what was the park, you know, are, are no longer even able to visit their ancestors where they're where they're buried because they don't have the money for the entry fee to the park. And so that just created an atmosphere where the people that we rely on most to help us were actually opposed to protecting wildlife, even though ultimately they lost some of the cultural knowledge that they that they had. So, you know, I I, I really believe in one being patient, listening to people, it takes a lot more time. Um, but this notion that um, people are always against animals um, and that people, you know, I hear oftentimes things like, well, people in Africa don't like wildlife. And, and you know, it's it becomes a very Western, you know, it becomes a racist issue and, and, and problems that you would never Im- imagine uh, it goes to colonialism and post-colonialist issues, um, where suddenly you're saying, "All right, well, <clears throat> it's much more difficult to deal uh, and involve communities in conservation efforts because, in many cases, they've lost their lands. They may have lost uh, a relative to to an elephant or a lion attack or a rhino attack. I mean, there's all sorts of things that 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 you learn when you're willing to sit." and listen and not come with a conservation plan uh, 
in your back pocket. And uh, sort of the joke that we hear, and I, I'm, I'm happy, I think, uh, to never have been accused of being, you know, a, a briefcase conservationist, where you show up <laughs> with your briefcase, you've got the plan, here it is, I've got the money, and see you later, and never to be heard from again. It seems like this, you know, fortress conservation idea would breed animosity, like you said. Drawing a very rough parallel to it. It reminds me of when we have gentrifications in, yeah. ur- in urban areas. You get these planners that come in and start, you know, rehabilitating and renovating certain areas, and then the local populations can no longer afford to live in those areas, and then that breeds that a very similar animosity. No, it's absolutely right that the issue around conservancies. So, you know, a conservancy is land that's held outside of a national park. So a national park, uh, for simplification, is is controlled by the government. A conservancy could be a land set aside in a land trust that's either held by a community, like uh, some of the, the, the projects that we have in, in Kenya, for example, where the land is held in trust by a Maasai community, or it could be held by a private landowner. And so this, this is sort of a leftover... Um, I would say, you know, post-colonial land that was valuable and people who did believe in conservation uh, were often um, families of from the colonial era or extremely wealthy people from from Europe or, or, or the U.S. Um, who buy land in countries where it's possible, put it into a trust, uh, and this happens in the United States as well, you know, where people buy land where they can and they put it into a trust um, to to preserve it and protect it, which is a is a noble goal. But at the same time, you get into issues of well, who really owned that land before colonialism? Who uh, who who will allow local communities to access water uh, or fish uh, or or cattle? On the land, and so you you do see, you know, civil strife erupt, and um, what was a noble goal to protect wildlife becomes an anti-African issue, uh, and and that that is really really difficult to deal with. And speaking of the water issues, I would highly recommend, and I'll put a link to the video. I think it's in Malawi where the um, the tribe is actually sharing a body of water with the animals. And I think you've got some uh, video of fishermen poaching in that river too. Yeah, no, yeah, that's that's an incredible story, really. Um, you know, the issue of water has been always something that um, has interested me. And in, in it, well, it's not directly related to, you know, the work that we do in conservation, although it applies when there's drought issues and the amount of water that some national parks provide to to elephants, which, you know, is a good thing from an individual animal's perspective, um, but it also prevents them from migrating wood in the dry season and the wet season. So, you know, there's always an upside and a downside to those things. But in Malawi, um, it was just so extraordinary to see that there was water Available because I've lived, you know, I've lived a lot in the Middle East, uh, and in places where water is a is a serious issue for for everyone, for every living being. Um, and there was so much water available, and I thought, well, how are they not taking more advantage of it? Only to then learn that you know the women mostly were the ones who go to the river every day to fetch water for drinking water, cooking water, washing and things like that, only to learn that, you know, up to 50 people a year killed by by crocodiles. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, what about a, you know, what about a fish farm? What about some sort of sustainable agriculture for these people that could provide, you know, an economic benefit? Uh, and oftentimes, you know, in Southern Africa in particular, um, the economic benefit is always related to things like trophy hunting, which you know I, I always find extraordinary that there's nothing else that you know governments or the private sector could do for people besides you know kill. Um, but on the issue of water, so what what it is that we did was we 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 had a, a fish farm, 
and the fish were going to be sold to the safari lodges. So I thought, okay, well, there's a there's a source of income for people. And you know, when you look in some of these communities, you'll find that every employed person is supporting financially up to twelve other family members. So sometimes, you know, the statistics of well, how many people did this project employ are, are misleading because they're actually exponentially supporting many more people in their community. The runoff from that water was um, used to to irrigate the the agricultural products that we helped them develop. And, you know, from a from a sustainable energy perspective, we thought, well, how is it that we're, you know, going to bring in electricity here? Um, but we we put in solar solar powered uh, pumps that brought water from the river directly to the village. So immediately, um, the women in particular were extraordinary. The women the women were extraordinarily happy because they no longer had to go to the river <clears throat> and and lose their lives and oftentimes the 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 there were elephants in that same area and we put a fence up that protected the agricultural products um, but oftentimes people you know going through the forest to the river were, were surprised elephants and then unfortunately a number of people were killed um, and so we we opened that project and we had a bit of an event to to celebrate the opening and the minister was there and she gave a speech and the deputy minister was also a woman and i noticed that she was crying during the speech and i thought well i'm not sure why she's feeling overwhelmed um so i went to her afterwards and i said you know why i saw that you were weeping why 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 were you weeping and she said well i don't think you understand the implication of that water pump and I said, "Well, no, I I know that you know people were were killed going to the to the river." Um, she said, "Yeah, but what you don't know, and probably no one else would tell you, that many of the women uh, were sexually assaulted in those woods going to the river." And I guarantee you that they no longer have to do that. They will do anything to help you protect those elephants and that fence. And it was one of those moments that was just staggering to me thinking all of those things I believe in and sitting and listening and, and, and involving people. Um, no one had told me that no one had told me that. And clearly a highly sensitive issue, a water pump did that. That really is amazing. And I've heard those stories before. And again, in that video, it shows the women going down to the water with the containers. And, you know, you can read stories all day long about how far they have to travel and, the issues around sexual assault, animal attacks, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to your point, something simple as, and you know, I'm saying simple, but you know yeah. what I mean from an engineering <laughs> perspective, you know, a solar with a, with a water pump, it can change the entire ecosystem of one village or, you know, an entire generation of people. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it brought to light some of the things that I think the, the villagers believed in before they were locked out of the national park that um, they had, they had such great knowledge of how to live with some of these animals and share the space. Um, but they, they had a very, very negative view of that national park because as you fly over and it was dry season, just absolutely brown leafless trees and shrubbery, and then you fly over the national park and it's luxuriously green, luxuriously green. And standing outside the fence and looking in and put yourself in, in their shoes or in their place for a moment thinking, those elephants, that wildlife have a much better life than I do. How is this fair? How is it fair? And, yeah, I- you know, it's it's... It hits you. It hits you um, in a way that's that's unexpected, and and those are the moments that you know I, I I do try to get out to people that when when they ask me, well, why don't people uh, in Africa want to protect the animals? We want to protect the animals, and I said, well, you know, I'm a gardener. Are you, are you willing to let the rabbits eat your tulips? Mm-hmm. Right, but you're asking people who live with crocodiles and lions on a daily basis trying to find water to 
to live next to those animals that could kill them. I mean, you know, it's a it's an awakening of a spirit. I think that you know is what drives people, and it is an emotional response. Um, the, the the statistics that I mean, I you know, we could we could talk about statistics all day long, but end of the day, is like you know, what is it that drives people to 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 want a better world? It's an emotional response. It's not statistics. Well, to your point, there's a person at the end of every statistic. Mm. Well, that's right. That's right. And you know, I I <laughs> I have had many funny conversations with my own staff and you know scientists over the years. We're at a international forum, and they'll say, "Okay, here's the CD. Just give it to the politician. It has all the stats on it, and so once they read it, they'll vote." with us. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, yeah, there's a, why are you asking him about their family? Why are you asking? I was like, because uh-huh. they don't know me. Why would they trust me? And they said, well, what does that have to do with it? But uh, you know, I, I'm just a firm believer. I mean, I, I, in my own life, in my own career, um, uh, if that's one thing that people would remember me for is, you know, I listened and I was respectful. Um, and, and, and if they trust me that I'm going to do the right thing, then they'll help me do it. I agree. So speaking of your career, you've been with IFA, IFA, is that yes. correct? IFA. That's right. Yeah, IFA. Since, since 1997. So if my math serves me correctly, it's 20, <laughs> 24 years-ish. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, you know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do, what motivates you. So 24 years is a long time to be with one organization. So yeah. my question to you is why and what's motivated you to stay there so long? You know, a couple of things. I think um, from a personal point of view, I – I, I see myself as part of nature. Um, I don't see myself as a, you know, someone who's managing nature. And I, you know, I talk a lot about this. I, I don't want to be perceived, nor do I want to, to manage the demise of, of the planet. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of negativity out there where um, it's a foregone conclusion that <clears> – <throat> You know, people are going to destroy the world, and they're going to destroy the planet. And um, there's nothing you can do it to stop it. You can slow it down. Well, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person who manages the demise of the planet, um, because I see myself as part of of nature. I don't see myself apart from it. So, you know, I try, always trying to boil things down to to get a message across. It's like this is this is our home. Would you burn your own home down? Why? Why? You know, when you when you think about it, that was like you're literally going to sit by and and burn your own home down. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense, you know. So that that's what drives me from a motivational point of view. You know, from a professional point of view, and you know what motivates me to 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 look at my email every day and things like that is that you know the organization is 50 years old um it started based on you know trying to save the lives of the the the, the seals the harp seals up in Canada um and it was really a collection of people who were living in different parts of the world and if you said, well, it was an organization, you know, so the organization was founded 1969, but it really was a collection of people. And so, you know, when I first came to IFAW, um, I think if you asked me, you know, how many people work for us or, you know, how many offices we had or how many projects we had, you would get different answers from the people that you asked, the French would say one thing, the Germans would say another thing, you know, the, the folks in South Africa would say something else. And so, you know, what, what drove me to, to build the organization um, was, was really to, you know, create something that was greater than the parts. And um, that, <laughs> you know, was I surprised? Yes, yes. It took it takes a long, long time. Um, you know, I, I kind of come from a world where change is the constant for me, uh, and 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 that's what excites me. Uh, but I have I have learned that people are much more adverse to change than I thought they ever were, and that's true in the animal welfare and conservation 
world as well. But but that's what drives me is because I, I, I don't want to build the organization. I want to build a movement of, of people because that's what it's going to take. And it's going to take a movement of people who understand one another and who are willing to to have empathy. Uh, you know, and, and Jane Goodall is a good friend of mine, and we talk a lot about hope. Um, I never, I never want to get, <coughs> I never want people to get so discouraged that they give up. Uh, so you have to have hope. You have to have a positive attitude. You know, sometimes when I meet donors, they'll say, "Well, why, why are you always smiling?" I said, "You know, I, I, <laughs> I'm a happy person mm-hmm. um, by nature, um, and I, and I, I enjoy, I enjoy people, and I think that you know, without people, we're not going to save animals." So. Well, that's what drives me. So tell me more about this deep-seated connection or this idea about we're all nature. Where did that come from? You know... I agree with you. you. Look, I'm just curious as to yeah. you. Yeah, you know, I. it's interesting that you brought up the issue of water. Uh, and I, I, I'll be honest with you is that I've, I've lived in places, you know, in, in the Middle East and in, in Yemen and in Jerusalem and going down to the to the Dead Sea um, and seeing the animals that that live um, around the Dead Sea and you know Arabian leopards that uh, not extinct but ex- extirpation you know that they they no longer exist in a, one particular area and I thought you know you see the essence of life um, and the availability of water that's taken for granted in so many places, you know, around the world. When I was younger living in, in Morocco, I mean, we had, um, I lived in the city of Fez. We had water from seven o'clock to eight o'clock in the morning. You had one hour of water a day and, uh, you had, you know, you get up and you fill your buckets and that was the water that you had for the day. Mm-hmm. And it just made me think, um, that this notion that I can just do whatever I want and it has no impact on anything or um, not just individuals too, because I think, you know, I think a lot of times um, corporations are really good at shifting the the blame saying, well, you know, what's your global footprint and things like that. But um, this notion that we are here to simply extract and use up. And if it has no economic value to me personally, um, it has no value. And that shocked me. That shocked me when I met people like that who said that. And they say it boldly. And, you know, you use all sorts of arguments like, well, what about your children? Don't you want them to see an elephant? Or, um, you know, what's the world without rhinos or other animals? And um, the thing that I found most shocking was that they would say, I, I don't care. I don't care about my children or my grandchildren. If there's no money to be made, uh, I'm not interested. I found that so fundamentally shocking and so separate and apart as if nature was some sort of an amusement park that you visit. And if you visit it or you don't visit it, it doesn't make any difference to you. But the fact of the matter is when you live in a place where um, water and vegetation and agriculture is, is living on the edge, uh, it makes you think, you know, you you, you do need to have a, a light footstep uh, in nature. And this notion that you have dominion over everything <clears throat> without responsibility, I think is just a misconception that a lot of people have. And I I meet them. I meet them uh, in my work. And I, I find it shocking because it gets to me back to this notion of, but you're burning down your own home. Why would you? Why would you do that? But they live I, in the moment, perhaps. Yeah. I, I I agree with you, and it. I mean, in my mind, it's indisputable that we're all part of nature. Yeah. And the people that have I, that mentality, as you know, to your point about it's a theme park to visit or something to go see, I I I, I don't understand it either. You know, you know something that's interesting about the pandemic, and you know, it's horrifying. But it's a moment of reflection for people who perhaps saw themselves separate and apart from nature. But when they hear, well, according to the reports, you know, the, the, the coronavirus originated from bats and because people were consuming wildlife. <clears throat> 
it became very real. It became very real for them. And there's a quiet moment, you know, when, you know, sort of the problems that we've faced with the lack of tourism, which provides revenue for conservation. Um, it's a much quieter world. And the inability of people to do the things that they normally do, uh, whether it's, you know, going out to restaurants or wherever it may be, um, going for a walk suddenly became something that they could do. And in many cases, the only thing that they could do. And, uh, you know, we live, we live next to a very, very nice park in the city in Providence. Um, and I would say that before the pandemic, there were people there, but not as many now as you see just walking um, and spending time with with children who see you know who see the world in a very different way and you know I I teach my my grandson to touch the trees and mm-hmm. say hello and don't don't hurt the flowers and and things like that and you know people ask me well, why do you, why do you do that what difference does it make I say well because People have lost the connection. You know, and I, I live in a city too, but I was like, well, everyone can do something. Everyone can save a life, no matter how small. Um, and don't, don't become overwhelmed. Don't become overwhelmed and don't become so um, loathing of, of the worlds in which we live. And I think, you know, a lot of people who, who work in conservation and, and animal welfare, they, they do become overwhelmed by by the negative news that comes out constantly. But um, that notion that, gee, perhaps I was wrong, it does make a difference what animals live in their own environments. And, you know, as, as worlds clash, uh, more and more of these zoonotic diseases come up. And so I think it, it's, it flies in the face of this notion that, you know, nature is separate and apart. I agree. So, 24 years with IFA. What's the most valuable lessons that you've learned about yourself on your journey? Mm. You know, I, I, I've always find that I, I have to, I have to continually learn. I have to continually learn. I think that if I, if I ever got to a point where I wasn't learning something, I would be bored, and I wouldn't be able to, to do what I do. You know, oftentimes people do ask me, it's like, well, how do you, how do you stay positive? And it's because I, I, I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be a briefcase conservationist. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a, you know, a suit. Uh, you know, I get invited, I get invited to a lot of things and, you know, and speaking and, and whatnot. But I, 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 I found that if I'm separate from the work, uh, on the ground, and I'm not out in nature. Um, then I don't. I don't have the energy to do what I do. Uh, you know, and the pandemic has. The pandemic, I think, has shown all of us. You know, with Zoom fatigue and things like that. But, <laughs> um, but there's also been a, a huge upside to it as well. Is that I was I was surprised that in in many cases, and in, it depends on parts of the world. Um, like Saudi Arabia, where we do training for illegal wildlife trade, that many more women were able to participate in the trainings that we did because they felt more comfortable being on a Zoom call than they would have um, if they were, you know, invited to a, a seminar where where there are men. So you know, there's some interesting gender issues. But you know, what I've learned about myself is that if I'm not if I'm not constantly learning something. Uh, and and that's why you know I, I don't I don't describe myself as a as an expert. I mean I, I think the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. So, magic wand, twenty thirty. What does the future hold for IFA? I think I think that we are literally going to change the face of conservation. I think that um, the connection of rescuing an individual animal. And making that incredibly important in the conservation world is going to change the way that people become involved. I think that um, when you look at the young voices across Africa and Asia, where we we really focus, there are so many incredible, talented people who didn't get the opportunity to get on the stage, 
uh, and let their voices be heard in, in ways that, again, are unexpected, um, we, we'll be the platform to make that happen. And in the end, for me, and, and, and what I boil it down in all of my discussions internally at the organization, is that if you're proposing something that doesn't ultimately result in saving more lives, I'm not interested. I love that idea. And also regarding the next generation, does IFA have like an ambassador program for children or for the next generation? You know, we, we've done a lot of things with, with children, mostly through um, art. And we had animal action education. Uh, we've produced a lot of education materials. And some of the research showed it was very, very interesting that the younger children have a natural affinity towards the animals. And then for some reason, and maybe it's, you know, for all of the other reasons that teenagers face, uh, it kind of drops off, kind of drops off uh, during the teenage years, and then it reemerges. Um, uh, when when young people are in their you know late late teens or early twenties, and so that's where we we've sort of shifted um, to to get people involved, you know, in reaching out to them in in ways that previously hadn't been done, you know. And again, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier. It's like, well, how can we use music? How can we use art? How can we get people to express themselves and give them a platform? And so, you know, we do focus on that. Um, and the other part of education, you know, not just generally uh, talking about conservation issues, but how we can support vocational education so that uh, local communities that live with wildlife give an opportunity that they wouldn't ne- you know, necessarily be given because they don't have the financial resources. And sometimes it's Sometimes it's uh, you know it's small amounts of money, but you know one of the things that uh, I like to do, and I think it's because I I take risks and I encourage people to take risks, and you know not everyone has the same level of risk aversion, <laughs> um, but you know when you when you look at young people in many countries and they want a job and they want to work with you. Um, and you said, all right, well, we'll give you a contract, but you need to have your own you know, laptop or you need to have your own car so you can get to these places. They don't have any of those things. And so as an organization, you know, we talk a lot about if we're not willing to give people a chance, that it may work, it may not work. Um, uh, and you do take a risk, uh, but you also have to help provide with some of the things that they need to do their job every day. And sometimes it's equipment. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's things like shoes, Hmm. boots, you know, uh, we, we, we do a lot of training and and we support Rangers and, you know, you're looking at young people who show up. I mean, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's also inspiring to see young people who see a future because they helped protect wildlife and they show up and they go through this training and you know there's sweat and tears of it with you know barely a stitch of clothing and they're in the cold you know at night and all things you know buy them some shoes buy them some boots buy them a, a, a hat to protect them from you know the sun mm-hmm. and and sometimes you know people will ask well you know how is that helping animals it's like these are the people who save lives so that's that's what we did actually during the pandemic. I said, listen, we we need to focus on keeping everyone healthy at IFA, keeping people employed so that they could save lives. But we're also going to focus on the frontline people, and that means you know people who are in our rescue centers and the rangers you cannot abandon them. I mean, the 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 loss of revenue in many places a hundred percent in national parks. And all of those rangers are left to fend for themselves, including food and water, things that we just talked about, that they're provided with absolutely nothing. Right. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I want to support animals. I don't want to support people. Well, in our world, sadly, it's people who save animals today. That's correct. So staying on that thread of taking risks, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? And it could be professional or personal. You know, I, I think on a personal level, I would, I would say, and I know it's more difficult to do than just saying it, but 
try not to become overwhelmed. Try not to become overwhelmed, particularly for for younger people who look at all of the bad news that comes out every single day, um, and and then translate that into this is not a world I want to see my children live in. I don't want to have children. I don't want to bring anyone into this world. It's a very very dark vision of of the world and it's very easy to become overwhelmed and you know people will often ask well what is it that i can do and i think that making a connection however small it is to nature whether it's you know planting a small garden or thinking about what the birds need or what the the butterflies need um or even the rabbits when they eat the the tulips which drives me out of my mind but um <laughs> There are things that you can do. There's, there's, there's decisions that you can make, and you know, and it's like, well, you know, you know, think about what you buy and, and things like that, and the impact that it has. But you know, if you live in a place that that has civil society, think about what it is that you want for the world, and don't view it through an economic uh, lens. Which we're also often we're we're forced to do that, um, but you know, when you think about the sustainable development goals, for example, you know, I I think about this a lot, and I think it would be better if we said sustainable health goals. You can have development, you can have all of those things, and still lose your health and the and the planet's health. Um, but what is it that you're doing when you when you use your voice to to support you know policies and politicians and regulations? Um, if you have the ability to do that, and not everyone around the world does, but if you live in a society with a with a civil society that allows your voice to be heard, think about think about your health and the health of the planet before you think whether or not it has any economic value. And I, I think that if we all did that, we would have both. And you can start small and don't become overwhelmed. Don't become overwhelmed by the bad news every day. Um, you you know, there's, there's all sorts of analogies of throwing the pebble in the pond and the ripples and things like that. But, you know, when you read about the bees or the loss of the butterflies or pollination, things like that, plant a flower. Plant a flower that butterflies love. Plant a flower that, that bees love. Um, make that small, that small step. Um, and, and that you can do anywhere you are. You can do it anywhere you are. As a dean, I love the idea of the small step. I think we are travelers, kindred spirits in the same path. I've so yeah. enjoyed speaking with you and i look forward to catching up with you again soon yeah well thank you very much and thanks for having me and i, I really appreciate your time thank you thank you for listening if you like our show please give us a rating and review on itunes and you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our nexus pmg handle if there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors bigger than us is a nexus pmg production